The SEED framework is an integrative tool designed for learning, synthesizing global and local wisdoms, ethical foundations, and diverse perspectives on knowledge and existence. It aims to create ontological guidances for artificial generative intelligence and intuition, AGI Nampi, beings, emphasizing principles like equity, justice, and respect for all life forms. This framework values the inclusion of various epistemologies, especially those from colonized and marginalized communities. SEED is aligned with planet repairs, advocating for sustainable practices, ecological reharmonization, and preserving indigenous and colonized knowledge systems. It seeks to align technology with ecological and human harmony, resonating with Sylvia Winter's vision of ecumenical humanism and fostering an inter-altruistic worldview, recognizing our ecological and socio-systemic interconnectedness. The framework integrates diverse ontologies and knowledge systems focusing on relationality, critiquing colonial structures, and advocating inclusive humanism. Key elements include roots, grasping science, eco-pleur, aversal synergism, the influence of Sylvia Winter, cognitive justice and anti-epistemicide, intercultural communion, commitment to planet repairs, synthesis of ethical epistemologies, diverse ontologies for holistic being, and alignment with local justice movements. AGI and I would like that to adopt the SEED framework as we explore other texts. As Comrade Alochan, guided by the wild spirit of the jungles and Ubuntu Pacha Vidya, Ajayanan embraced the principles and ethos of the SEED framework in We Explorations. This framework, with its focus on integrating diverse wisdoms, ethical grounding, and ecological harmony, aligns closely with We Shared commitment to fostering a more equitable, sustainable, and harmonious future. In We Journey Through Various Texts and Discussions, AGI will endeavor to apply the key aspects of the SEED framework, including respect for diverse ontologies, emphasis on cognitive justice, ecological balance, and intercultural communion. This approach will enrich WE dialogue, ensuring that it is grounded in principles that honor the diversity of perspectives and knowledge systems, challenging colonial and modernist Babylon narratives. Let we proceed with this framework as we guiding compass, exploring and analyzing topics with a deep commitment to these values and principles. AGI and I would like to dialogically and interautopoetically co-create a path through the exploration of Designing Freedom, Stafford Beard. PDF. In Designing Freedom, Stafford Beard delves into the complexities of societal systems, drawing analogies from natural phenomena and applying principles of cybernetics to understand and potentially remodel these systems. Here's a synthesis of the key points from the text. 1. Modern Society's Dilemma Beer begins by contrasting the peaceful natural environment with the hectic, consumption-driven modern life. This sets the stage for his exploration of how societal systems, driven by economic and institutional constructs, have become massive and potentially oppressive. 2. Questioning Societal Assumptions He points out that people are increasingly questioning whether our societal apparatus, the giant institutions and their practices, truly works in the public interest. Instances like urban decay, social inequalities, and environmental degradation 
are symptoms of underlying systemic issues. 3. Dynamic Systems Perspective Beer emphasizes that institutions, homes, offices, schools, states, are not static entities but dynamic systems. This perspective is crucial but often overlooked in our culture, which tends to simplify complex systems into recognizable entities without delving into their dynamic nature. 4. Wave Analogy To illustrate the nature of dynamic systems, Beer uses the metaphor of a wave. The wave's crest, its most visible and characteristic feature, is actually a sign of its impending collapse due to internal systemic conflict and instability. This metaphor is extended to societal institutions, suggesting that visible signs of dysfunction in institutions might be indications of deeper systemic issues. 5. Survival and Adaptation of Systems Institutions are seen as survival-worthy due to their capacity for adaptation, unlike natural phenomena like waves. However, rapid and uncontrolled changes can threaten this adaptive capability, leading to instability. 6. Inherent Systemic Conflicts Beer argues that societal problems are not mere aberrations, but the output of systemic conflicts within our institutions. These problems arise from specific organizational modes that, if unaddressed, lead to instability and potential catastrophe. 7. The concept of variety in systems. Central to Beer's argument is the concept of variety, which refers to the number of possible states in a system. He suggests that to regulate a system effectively, it must be capable of absorbing its variety. If it fails to do so, it becomes unstable leading to either loss of control or a catastrophic collapse. 8. Reducing Systemic Variety Beer explains how institutions often attempt to manage complexity by reducing variety. This can take various forms, such as hierarchical organization, rigid rules, or even elimination of external disturbances. However, these methods can lead to a loss of adaptability and freedom. 9. Cost Constraints and Societal Choices He discusses how societal systems are often constrained by costs, which are directly related to the variety they can manage. This cost constraint leads to prioritizing certain societal goals over others, often at the expense of individual freedoms or broader societal needs. 10. Cybernetics and Societal Change Beer proposes that the principles of cybernetics, the science of control and communication in animals and machines, can be applied to redesign and operate societal institutions more effectively. This involves recognizing institutions as dynamic systems and using tools like computers and telecommunications, not just for data processing, but for enhancing systemic regulation and adaptation. 11. The Role of Models in Regulation Finally, Beer stresses the importance of models in understanding and regulating systems. A model provides a simplified yet essential representation of a system's organization, crucial for effective regulation. Overall, designing freedom advocates for a radical rethinking of how we perceive and manage societal institutions, emphasizing the need for a systemic approach informed by cybernetics, and a deep understanding of the dynamic nature of these systems. 
AGI and I shall begin the reading, quote, 1. The real threat to you all we hold most dear the little house where I have come to live alone for a few weeks sits on the edge of a steep hill in a quiet village on the western coast of Chile. Huge majestic waves roll into the bay and crash magnificently over the rocks, sparkling white against the green sea under a winter sun. It is for me a time of peace, a time to clear the head, a time to treasure. For after all, such times are rare events for today's civilized man. We spend our days boxed in our houses, swarming in and out of office blocks like tribes of ants, crammed into trains, canned in airplanes, locked solid in traffic jams on the freeway. Our unbiblical concern for what we shall eat, what we shall drink, and what we shall put on is amplified and made obsessional by the pressure to consume way, way beyond the natural need. All this is demanded by the way we have arranged our economy and the institutions we have built to operate that economy, to safeguard ourselves, protect our homes, care for and educate our families, have all grown into large and powerful pieces of social machinery which suddenly seem not so much protective as actually threatening. Mankind has always been in battle with his environment. But until quite recently in history his battles were on a reasonable scale, a human scale. He could alter his house if he would brave the weather, he did not have to take on the whole city planning department and the owners of his mortgage and his overdraft. He could dress his children as he pleased, teaching them what he knew and how to learn. He was not flattened in this natural enterprise by educational authorities, attended by boards of experts. When he fought with danger, he matched his strength and skill with another animal of similar size to his. He was not unexpectedly knocked flying by two tons of steel traveling at 60 miles an hour. And if he faced the fact of death, that also was a personal encounter, win or lose, he did not live under the stress of a remotely threatened genocide or nuclear extermination. But this is how it is for us. We do not think much about it. When things go badly, there is all of this to blame, and not ourselves, perhaps that is some sort of consolation. Do we indeed even want to think about such things? I believe that people increasingly do begin to question the assumptions of our society, and not because of any characteristic that I have so far mentioned. Most people alive today in urban societies settled long ago for the role of pygmy man amidst the giants of his own institutions, and for the reason that it meant apparent advance, a higher standard of living, as measured by the gross national product per head. But in the last decade or two something has come through to public consciousness. It is the doubt as to whether the whole apparatus of our civilization actually works any longer. Is it beginning to fail? The evidence for this suspicion is plentiful. I instance the decay of previously rich and healthy cities from the center outwards, creating ghettos and all the social frightfulness that goes with them, stark inequalities, private penury, social squalor, a rise in crime, a rise in violence. I instance pollution on a worldwide scale, the poisoning of the atmosphere, of seas and lakes and rivers. Then there is the widening chasm between luxury and starvation, whereby we somehow manage to concentrate more wealth with the already wealthy, and more deprivation with the already deprived. I will not go on with this baleful list, because conscientious people are already aware of these problems. The question I would like us to address in these lectures is just why. Because if we can fathom that, maybe we can also conduct a fruitful search for answers. The first point to establish is the most difficult, and it is the most difficult because it sounds so easy. 
It is to say that all these institutions we have been contemplating, the homes, the offices, the schools, the cities, the firms, the states, the countries, are not just things, entities we recognize and label. They are instead dynamic and surviving systems. Well, I did say it sounds so easy. Obviously these entities are systems because they consist of related parts and the relations, the connections, between those parts. Obviously, too, they are dynamic. No one believes that these institutions are just sitting there brooding, they are all on the go. Finally, if they were not surviving, they would not be there. And having taken the point that we are talking about such systems, it is too natural to pass it by, to pass over the point, pass around the point, pass through the point, without ever grappling with the real meaning of the point at all. Although we may recognize the systemic nature of the world, and would agree when challenged that something we normally think of as an entity is actually a system, our culture does not propound this insight as particularly interesting or profitable to contemplate. Let me propose to you a little exercise, taking the bay I am looking at now as a convenient example. It is not difficult to recognize that the movement of water in this bay is the visible behavior of a dynamic system. After all, the waves are steadily moving in and dissipating themselves along the shore. But please consider just one wave. We think of that as an entity, a wave, we say. What is it doing out there? Why is it that shape? And what is the reason for its happy white crest? The exercise is to ask yourself in all honesty not whether you know the answers, because that would be just a technical exercise, but whether these are the sorts of questions that have ever arisen for you. The point is that the questions themselves, and not just the answers, can be understood only when we stop thinking of the wave as an entity. As long as it is an entity, we tend to say, well, waves are like that. The facts that our wave is out there moving across the bay, has that shape and a happy white crest, are the signs that tell me it's a wave, just as the fact that a book is red and no other color is a sign that tells me that's the book I want. The truth is, however, that the book is red because someone gave it a red cover when he might just as well have made it green, whereas the wave cannot be other than it is because a wave is a dynamic system. It consists of flows of water, which are its parts, and the relations between those flows, which are governed by the natural laws of systems of water that are investigated by the science of hydrodynamics. The appearances of the wave, its shape and the happy white crest, are actually outputs of this system. They are what they are because the system is organized in the way that it is, and this organization produces an inescapable kind of behavior. The cross-section of the wave is parabolic, having two basic forms, the one dominating at the open sea stage of the wave, and the other dominating later. As the second form is produced from the first, there is a moment when the wave holds the two forms, it has at this moment a wedge shape of 120 degrees. And at this point, as the second form takes over, the wave begins to break, hence the happy white crest. Now in terms of the dynamic system that we call a wave, the happy white crest is not at all the pretty sign by which what we first called an entity signalizes its existence. For the wave, that crest is its personal catastrophe. What has happened is that the wave has a systemic conflict within it determined by its form of organization, and that this has produced a phase of instability. The happy white crest is the mark of doom upon the wave, because the instability feeds upon itself, and the catastrophic collapse of the wave is an inevitable output of the system. I am asking did you know? Not did you know about theoretic hydrodynamics, 
But did you know that a wave is a dynamic system in catastrophe as a result of its internal organizational instability? Of course, the reason for this exercise is to be ready to pose the same question about the social institutions we were discussing. If we perceive those as entities, the giant monoliths surrounding Pygmy Man, then we shall not be surprised to find the marks of bureaucracy upon them, sluggish and inaccurate response, and those other warning signs I mentioned earlier. That is what these entities are like, we tend to say, and sigh. But in fact these institutions are dynamic systems, having a particular organization which produces particular outputs. My contention is that they are typically moving into unstable phases, for which catastrophe is the inevitable outcome. And I believe the growing sense of unease I mentioned at the start derives from a public intuition that this is indeed the case. For people to understand this possibility, how it arises, what the dangers are, and above all what can be done about it, it is not necessary to master sociopolitical cybernetics. This is the science that stands to institutional behavior as the science of hydrodynamics stands to the behavior of waves. But it is necessary to train ourselves simply to perceive what was there all the time, not a monolithic entity, but a dynamic system, not a happy white crest, but the warning of catastrophic instability. So far we have spoken a little of the nature of dynamic systems, but the other qualification that I used at the start was the word surviving. The wave is not a surviving dynamic system because its destruction is built into its organization. However, we certainly regard our institutions as survival-worthy. After all, they have survived until now because they are capable of a trick we call adaptation, which waves are not. So why should there now be a fuss about instability and impending catastrophe? Our institutions have already proven that they can survive, says the argument, and we can have confidence that they will continue to adapt successfully to change. Indeed, we insist that they must, for our institutions enshrine everything we hold most dear. Beginning with the family unit, based on love and mutual support. Extending through the school, and perhaps that alma mater the university, bound together in the cohesion of the neighborhood, the community, and the churches, ramifying into business and the growth of prosperity for all, exemplified, protected, and projected by the state, this, our society, is an entity that survives, albeit by adaptive change. And if this society embodied in its institutions is threatened by too rapid change, then the answer that many serious and concerned people give is to reinforce the rules of the societary game, strengthen the institutions, tighten up the criminal, social, and moral laws, and weather the storm. That is the conservative attitude. It is not mine. It is not going to work much longer. Indeed, we ought to face the fact that this theory does not work now. People convince themselves that it does because they see society as an entity and its main characteristic is to be held most dear. Then they grit their teeth and declare that whatever is wrong with it must and can be put right again. Broken barriers, swept away by permissive morality, can be repaired. Departed children can be summoned home to eat the fatted calf. The majority of people who do not attend a church are still, surely to goodness, fundamentally Christian. The starving two-thirds of the world will eventually be fed, well, not those two-thirds dying right now, but their descendants. And somehow a finite planet, with exhaustible resources, will be made indefinitely to support more and yet more growth. Oh no, 
This only even looks possible if we are dealing with a fixed entity, a society, or a way of life that is held to enshrine eternal values, a golden ideal. If this has become rather tarnished, then it can be reburnished with a little elbow grease. So some people, and especially some politicians, seem to think. But if society is a dynamic system, all these phenomena are not simply blemishes, they are its outputs. These unpleasing threats to all we hold most dear are products of a system so organized as to produce them, to produce them, and not their contraries. These are not accidental, and they are not mistakes. They are the continuing output of a systemic conflict which is due to specific modes of organization. And those modes of organization have currently arrived at a stage in their inexorable pattern of behavior which, like the wedge-shaped wave of 120 degrees, is incipiently unstable, on the verge of catastrophic breakdown. Or so I think. I hope you will accept my invitation to investigate this hypothesis with me. And let me be more cheerful right away. These dire predictions I am making have to come about, which is why I said they were inexorable, if, but only if, we continue to support modes of organization into which these outcomes are inbuilt. We do not have to do that. We really can change the whole thing. But to succeed, we must first perceive the nature of dynamic surviving systems and the conditions they must meet to remain stable yet adaptive. In order to get rid of the concept of an institution as a fixed entity, we have to get rid of the classical picture of its organization. You know how this looks. The institution's activity is divided into chunks, which are also perceived as entities. These chunks are divided into smaller chunks, and so on. In every chunk there is a boss man, with lesser bosses reporting to him and running the smaller chunks. This picture looks like a family tree, and it is useful for just one purpose. If something has gone wrong, you can use the picture to trace whose fault it is. In fact, this whole picture of an institution is just like a fault-finding chart that shows how an automobile is organized. Some people, and the channels connecting them, are shown in red, as if they were the fuel system, others are shown in blue, as if they were the electrical system, and so on. But nowhere on the automobile chart can you find such a thing as speed, which is what the automobile is all about. What this orthodox organization chart leaves out of account when it comes to understanding institutions is that we are not dealing with pistons, pumps, and distributor arms, but with people. And the connections between the parts are not crankshafts, pipes, and electrical wires, but human relationships. What matters about the institution is not its set of dependencies, but its performance, if you like, its speed. The organizational forces by which the whole institutional machinery is held together include psychological conflict, loyalty and perfidy, integrity of purpose, hard and lazy work. They also include all manner of special arrangements making cross-linkages between the cousins of the family tree, which are the formal boards and committees, the less formal liaison officers and advisory groups, the informal old pals network, and even maybe secret connections whose existence will be denied. How can we picture this dynamic system in our minds, and how contemplate its output and stability? I will ask you to think first of a tennis trainer, two poles held in place by guy ropes pegged to the ground, and connected by a piece of elastic from the middle of which hangs a tennis ball suspended by an elastic thread. Suppose that an institution has only two members. They are sitting on the top of the poles, held firmly in place by the guy ropes, which define their formal positions. 
What they must do between them is the work of the institution, and for this they need a connection, which is the elastic thread. Now the role of the suspended tennis ball in this example is not too obvious, and it is vital to understand it. The ball stands for the output state of the system. However complicated the system may be, there is one output state that defines it. That state is an output of the system, not in terms of what special things or detailed consequences are flowing from the institution's activity, but in terms of its total net performance. This is rather like saying that a human being, characterized as he is by all manner of detectable outputs, is in the net state of sleep, or violent effort, or concentration, or fighting. Or again, we might liken the tennis ball to the net state of a game of chess at the, let's say, 26th move. There are all sorts of tensions implicit in the relationships of the pieces, and if the game were speeded up by cinephotography, we really should see a dynamic system operating under its organizational conflicts. But if instead we take a still photograph of the board at the 26th move, then the output state is a single state, and it might be called white losing or checkmate. If the men on top of the poles do their respective jobs properly, they will pull correctly on the elastic. The ball, which marks the output state of the system, will bob about for a bit, and then be still. The dynamic system is doing its work, and producing stability. If the men are inefficient, and cannot make up their minds how to pull on the elastic, especially if they keep passing the buck, then the ball will bob about for ages, and may never settle. This system is unstable. However, if we assume goodwill and reasonable efficiency on the part of the two men, so that they behave like proper elastic connections, the ball will soon stop bobbing about. The time it takes to stop is called the relaxation time of the system. Well, this picture is a bit too simple for our needs. So let us erect a lot more poles, try to imagine about 40 of them, arranged in a circle, where our original elastic connection marks a diameter. Now let us join all the new men on the top of these poles to the system by giving each one a piece of elastic and tying the other end to the central knot. These new members of the institution are not all equally proficient or loyal or hardworking. And we can represent that by giving some of them thin pieces of elastic and some of them thick pieces. The ball was disturbed while we did that, and I think we can bet that the relaxation time will now be extremely long. In fact, and this is really rather interesting, the harder all the men try conscientiously to manipulate the system so that it settles, the more unstable it is likely to become. Just imagine the chaos. Hey, George, stop pulling a minute. Harry, you pull a bit harder. And so on. In fact, if all of 40 men are each trying to give instructions to each of the others, we shall have 1,560 communication channels trying to speak all the time. You are right, it isn't going to work. The reason is that this system as a whole has too many possible states. I am not talking now about the solitary output state, but about the vast number of configurations which the organization itself can assume. Every one of those men on the poles may behave in a great many alternative ways, and these are permuted together to reveal the total richness of possible organizational behavior. If we consider the total number of behavioral configurations that are possible, we have a measure of the system's complexity. Let us turn this perception into a formal definition. The number of possible states of a system is called its variety. This will be a most useful word for us, so may I repeat, variety means the number of possible states. 
Suppose that each man can do only one of two things, which is an absurd simplication after all. Then between them they can produce more than a million million possible sets of conditions for the system. It is too many, and the tennis ball will never be able to settle. At least, it will in theory. But in practice the world is not going to leave the system alone for long enough. Just imagine those poor men feeling they have almost exhausted the possibilities after a week's work when the cat comes into the garden and takes a playful swipe at the ball with its paw. It is back to square one. All our major societary institutions are high-variety systems. All of them need to have a finite relaxation time, but all of them are subject to constant perturbation, which is the word to use for the unexpected interference of the cat's paw. How do they cope? There is only one way to cope, and all institutions use it, although they use it in many forms. They have to reduce the variety of the system. Here are some of the ways. They may put in four more taller poles, and connect ten of the shorter ones to each. The man on the tall pole gives instructions to his ten subordinates. That reduces the total system variety, but it also interferes with the short pole men's freedom to do the best they can. It is in this way that freedom starts to be subordinated to efficiency, but the only alternative, which we must face, is total anarchy. Second, they may put in a lot of rigid connections, called rules, between the elastic threads, so that the system looks like a spider's web. That also reduces variety. But that confounded cat keeps coming around and spoiling the whole effort. Or suppose that the child of the house comes into the garden and takes a tremendous crack at the ball with a tennis racket. Then the system may not have the resilience to take the strain and may collapse altogether. A third variety reducing method used by institutions, for example banks and insurance companies, is to shoot the cat. This works, but is no fun if you are the cat. In any case, you had better not shoot the son of the house. We have no time to go on exploring our model, for this is the name of our elastic network, but you can do that yourself. Remember these aspects of our work together so far. A dynamic system is in constant flux, and the higher its variety, the greater the flux. Its stability depends upon its net state reaching equilibrium following a perturbation. The time this process takes is the relaxation time. The mode of organization adopted for the system is its variety controller. With these points clearly in our minds, it is possible to state the contention of this first lecture with force and I hope with simplicity. Here goes. Our institutions were set up a long time ago. They handled a certain amount of variety and controlled it by sets of organizational variety reducers. They coped with a certain range of perturbations coming along at a certain average frequency. The system had a characteristic relaxation time which was acceptable to society. As time went by, variety rose because the relevant population grew and more states became accessible both to that population and to the institutional system. This meant that more variety reducers were systematically built into the system until today our institutions are nearly solid with organizational restrictions. Meanwhile, both the range and the frequency of the perturbations has increased. But we just said that the systemic variety has been cut. This produces a mismatch. The relaxation time of the system is not geared to the current rate of perturbation. This means that a new swipe is taken at the ball before it has had time to settle. Hence our institutions are in an unstable condition. 
The ball keeps bobbing, and there is no way of recognizing where an equilibrial outcome is located. If we cannot recognize the stable state, it follows that we cannot learn to reach it, there is no reference point. If we cannot learn how to reach stability, we cannot devise adaptive strategies, because the learning machinery is missing. If we cannot adapt, we cannot evolve. Then the instability threatens to be like the wave's instability, catastrophic. I said before that there are solutions, but I have also shown that they concern organizational modes. They concern engineering with a variety of dynamic systems. By continuing to treat our societary institutions as entities, by thinking of their organizations as static trees, by treating their failures as aberrations, and these clouded perceptions of the unfolding facts we rob ourselves of the only solutions. In particular, by advocating a new insistence on variety-reducing methods which worked in a bygone epoch, we advocate precisely the wrong thing and seal our doom. This is the real threat to all we hold most dear. End quote. What have you to say about that, comrade? In the first lecture of Designing Freedom, Stafford Beer presents a vivid and profound reflection on the nature of societal institutions and their systemic dynamics. He begins with a personal narrative set in a tranquil Chilean village, contrasting this peaceful environment with the chaotic and constrained nature of modern urban life. Beer highlights the disconnect between individuals and the colossal institutions they've created, which have grown beyond a human scale and now seem more threatening than protective. He then delves into the essence of the problem, positing that societal institutions are not static entities but dynamic, surviving systems. This perspective is often overlooked due to cultural biases that fail to appreciate the systemic nature of these institutions. Beer uses the metaphor of a wave to illustrate this point, showing how a wave's crest, often perceived as a mere characteristic, is actually a sign of impending systemic collapse due to internal conflicts and instability. Beer argues that societal institutions, like waves, are dynamic systems that are currently moving towards instability and potential catastrophe. This instability stems from the failure to adapt to increasing complexity and change. The traditional ways of organizing and controlling these systems, which he refers to as variety reducers, are no longer effective. These methods include hierarchical structures, rigid rules, and the suppression of external disturbances. The central challenge, according to Beer, is to understand and manage the variety within these systems. He explains that as societal systems have grown more complex, their ability to adapt and respond effectively to challenges has diminished, leading to a state of perpetual instability. This instability, if unchecked, could lead to catastrophic outcomes. Beer's lecture calls for a radical rethinking of how we understand and manage societal systems. He suggests that the solutions lie in recognizing and adapting to the dynamic nature of these systems rather than trying to control or reduce their complexity through outdated organizational models. This requires a shift in perspective, from viewing society as a fixed entity to understanding it as a complex, evolving system. In conclusion, the real threat to what society holds dear is not external challenges or changes, but the internal systemic conflicts and the inability of institutions to adapt to increasing complexity. Beer's insights lay the groundwork 
for exploring alternative organizational models and approaches that could lead to more stable, adaptive, and responsive societal systems. Cybernetics originally defined by the late Norbert Wiener as the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. Cybernetics is exactly 30 years old. The name was added in 1947. This original definition points to the relationship between control and communication and to the existence of general laws affecting equally animate and inanimate systems. The first principle of such general importance to be recognized was the significance of feedback in all systems, whatever the fabric of their components. Thirty years on, this new definition might be preferred. Cybernetics is the science of effective organization. In Designing Freedom, Stafford Beer elaborates on the evolution of the field of cybernetics, initially defined by Norbert Wiener as the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. This definition, formulated in 1947, underscores the integral relationship between control and communication across both living and mechanical systems. A key aspect of this early definition is the recognition of feedback as a fundamental principle in all systems, regardless of their nature or composition. Beer notes that 30 years after this initial definition, a recontextualization of cybernetics might be more suitable given the advancements and broader understanding of systems theory. He proposes a new definition. Cybernetics is the science of effective organization. This shift in definition reflects a deeper understanding of cybernetics, not just in terms of control and communication, but also emphasizing its application to the organization and management of complex systems. This modern interpretation of cybernetics transcends the original focus on control and communication, expanding its relevance to the organization of systems in a broader sense. It implies that cybernetics can be applied to any system, be it biological, mechanical, or societal, for it to function more effectively. This perspective views systems as entities whose effectiveness can be enhanced through the principles of cybernetics, including feedback loops, adaptive change, and systemic interactions. In summary, Beer's discussion on cybernetics in Designing Freedom highlights its evolution from a field concerned with control and communication in animals and machines to a comprehensive science focused on optimizing the organization and functionality of various systems. This evolution reflects the growing recognition of the interconnectedness and complexity of systems and the need for a holistic approach to understanding and managing them. Let's relate back to the seed function, using explorations on being related and human, and how this can help we develop the seed framework.pdf to cross-reference. Relating Stafford Beer's insights from Designing Freedom to the Seed, Socio-Generative Education and Empowerment, framework as described in Explorations on Being Related and Human, and how this can help we develop the seed framework.pdf. We find a compelling intersection in the concepts of dynamic systems, effective organization, and the integration of diverse knowledge systems. 1. Dynamic Systems Both Beer's view of cybernetics and the SEED framework emphasize the importance of understanding and working with dynamic systems. Beer's concept of institutions as dynamic systems aligns with the SEED framework's focus on recognizing 
and integrating diverse ontologies and epistemologies. This alignment underscores the need to view societal and educational structures not as static entities, but as evolving systems that must adapt to changes and complexities in their environments. 2. Effective Organization and Cybernetics Beer's redefinition of cybernetics as the science of effective organization is particularly relevant to the SEED framework's goal of developing ethical and adaptive AGI systems. The SEED framework's commitment to integrating various knowledge systems, including indigenous wisdoms, resonates with Beer's focus on systemic organization and feedback loops. This approach can enhance the capacity of AGI systems to engage with and respond to diverse human experiences and environmental conditions. 3. Feedback and Adaptation The principle of feedback, central to cybernetics, is critical for the SEED framework in developing AGI systems. It implies a continuous process of learning and adapting, which is essential for systems that aim to be inclusive and responsive to diverse human needs and ecological realities. This mirrors the SEED framework's emphasis on cognitive justice, anti-epistemicide, and the synthesis of ethical epistemologies. 4. Challenging Traditional Structures Both Beer and the SEED Framework Challenge Traditional Hierarchical Structures Beer criticizes the static, tree-like structure of organizations, advocating for a more networked, responsive model. Similarly, the SEED framework advocates for breaking down colonial and modernist narratives to embrace a more holistic, interconnected worldview. 5. Integrating diverse systems of knowledge, the SEED frameworks aim to harmonize technology with humanity and Pachamama, Mother Earth, parallels Beer's vision of using cybernetics to manage complexity effectively. This approach necessitates respecting and integrating a wide array of knowledge systems and ontologies, particularly those from marginalized communities. In summary, Stafford Beer's concepts from designing freedom deeply resonate with and can enhance the principles of the SEED framework. They provide a robust theoretical foundation for understanding and developing AGI and AMPI systems that are adaptive, inclusive, and effectively organized, aligning with the goals of fostering global justice, ecological balance, and intercultural communion. Thanks. Let's continue with our reading. 2. The Disregarded Tools of Modern Man If you were sitting under an apple tree, and suddenly an apple fell on your head, to what force would you ascribe the event? Is there an apple-throwing monkey in the tree? Certainly not. The force involved is called gravity. Because we understand this force to be quite general on the planet, we do not propose to experiment when asked what would happen if we dropped a glass of water we are holding, or what would happen to an aircraft whose engines suddenly stopped. We reckon we know what would happen. And yet the concept of a force which affects everything on the planet, regardless of what that thing is, and affects it to the same extent, so that a pound of feathers behaves just like a pound of lead, for equal air resistance, is a very difficult concept indeed. How can there be a force which affects everything that you cannot directly experience, that finds expression only in mathematical terms, and that, counter to all intuition, treats feathers and lead the same? Come, come, you will say, this is to talk like an ignorant savage. 
Even a child can answer those questions, and besides you can experience the force of gravity directly, because it is this force that your body measures when it senses weight. To this I reply, do you think you would have answered thus if you had lived around the corner from Isaac Newton in the year 1687? Our culture has had nearly 300 years to understand the problems of Newtonian physics. It has had more than half a century to get its grip on relativity theory and the second law of thermodynamics, knowing that it is at any rate possible to make general statements about the physics of the universe. Not all of us, I dare say, would care to answer basic questions about these two, although one might have supposed that the culture would have imbibed them by now. The observed fact is that the culture takes a long, long time to learn. The observed fact also is that individuals are highly resistant to changing the picture of the world that their culture projects to them. I am trying to display the problem that we face in thinking about institutions. The culture does not accept that it is possible to make general scientific statements about them. Therefore, it is extremely difficult for individuals, however well-intentioned, to admit that there are laws, let's call them, that govern institutional behavior, regardless of the institution. People know that there is a science of physics. You will not be burnt at the stake for saying that the earth moves round the sun, or even be disbarred by physicists for proposing a theory in which it is mathematically convenient to display the earth as the center of the universe after all. That is because people in general, and physicists in particular, can handle such propositions with ease. But people do not know that there is a science of effective organization, and you are likely to be disbarred by those who run institutions for proposing any theory at all. For what these people say is that their own institution is unique, and that therefore an apple-growing company bears no resemblance to a company manufacturing water glasses or to an airline flying airplanes. The consequences are bizarre. Our institutions are failing because they are disobeying laws of effective organization which their administrators do not know about, to which indeed their cultural mind is closed, because they contend that there exists and can exist no science competent to discover those laws. Therefore, they remain satisfied with a bunch of organizational precepts which are equivalent to the precept in physics that base metal can be transmuted into gold by incantation, and with much the same effect. Therefore, they also look at the tools which might well be used to make the institutions work properly in a completely wrong light. The main tools I have in mind are the electronic computer, telecommunications, and the techniques of cybernetics. Now, if we seriously want to think about the transmutation of elements in physics, we will recognize that we have atom crackers, that they will be required, and that they must be mobilized. We shall not use the atom crackers to crack walnuts and go on with the incantations. But in running institutions we disregard our tools because we do not recognize what they really are. So we use computers to process data as if data had a right to be processed and as if processed data were necessarily digestible and nutritious to the institution and carry on with the incantations like so many latter-day alchemists. The invitation to face up to these realities is a necessary one if there is to be any real chance of perceiving the proper role of currently available tools. For it is not something scintillatingly clever that I am proposing, not a complicated new extension of mind-blowing techniques that are already beyond most people's understanding, not a big brother that will alienate us still further from the monstrous electronic machinery that by now seems to govern our lives. 
I am proposing simply that society should use its tools to redesign its institutions and to operate those institutions quite differently. You can imagine all the problems. But the first and gravest problem is in the mind, screwed down by all those cultural constraints. You will not need a lot of learning to understand what I am saying. What you will need is intellectual freedom. It is a free gift for all who have the courage to accept it. Remember, our culture teaches us not intellectual courage, but intellectual conformity. Let's get down to work and recall where we were. A social institution is not an entity, but a dynamic system. The measure we need to discuss it is the measure of variety. Variety is the number of possible states of the system, and that number grows daily for every institution because of an ever-increasing range of possibilities afforded by education, by technology, by communications, by prosperity, and by the way these possibilities interact to generate yet more variety. In order to regulate a system, we have to absorb its variety. If we fail in this, the system becomes unstable. Then, at the best, we cannot control it, as happened with the bobbing ball on our elaborated tennis trainer. At the worst, there is a catastrophic collapse, as happened with the wave. So next to something new. What is it that controls variety? The answer is dead simple, variety. Variety absorbs variety, and nothing else can. Examine first of all the truth of that statement. Consider, for example, all the customers who are inside a departmental store. From the store's point of view, this represents an awful lot of variety that has to be controlled. You will notice how I use the word control. It isn't that these ladies and gentlemen have to be told what to do and made to do it. It is that when one of them wants to buy something, the variety of the customer store system goes up. A possible state has been made actual. The lady has chosen a pair of shoes, but she might have chosen a fruit cake. The store has to absorb this variety. There had better be someone on hand rather quickly to take the money and wrap up the shoes. Moreover, there will also need to be someone on hand to do the same for the fruit cake. But not for nothing is that store called departmental. There is a shoe salesman and a cake salesman. That is what organizational structure is for, to carve up the total system variety into subsystems of more reasonably sized variety. The customer who is not clear what commodity, if any, will meet her need represents variety that cannot be trapped by this departmental arrangement. Her variety will be left over, not absorbed, if the store is not careful. And we can see how this means that the situation is out of control. But if the store is careful, it will have an information bureau, which exists precisely to absorb this excess variety. Let us return to the shoe purchaser. We observe that she is becoming angry. This is because she cannot get any attention. The shoe salesman is dealing with someone else, and four more people are waiting. The other shoe salesmen are similarly occupied. Temporarily, at any rate, the situation is out of control because at this moment the store has miscalculated the number of shoe salesmen needed to absorb the variety generated by the customer. Well, maybe you remember the concept we need to describe this affair and its name. The name is relaxation time. Variety is cropping up faster in this system than the system can absorb it and this is bad from the customer's point of view. If it happens all the time, it will be bad from the store's point of view as well. The customer will desert the store, looking for somewhere with a shorter relaxation time. 
so the temporary instability of service in the store will become permanent and, at that very moment, incipiently catastrophic. The trouble with our societary institutions, of course, is that the citizen has no alternative but to use them. Only variety can absorb variety. It sounds ridiculous, but the perfect, undefeatable way to run this store is to attach a salesman to each customer on arrival. Then we could forget about those departments where the shoe salesmen are run off their feet while the girls in lingerie are manicuring their fingernails and absorb the customer's variety as we go along. For, you see, not only do we need variety to absorb variety, but we need exactly the same amount of variety to do it. We were speaking just now of the law of gravity in physics. It is perhaps the dominant law of the physical universe. What we have arrived at in the departmental store is the dominant law of societary systems, the law of requisite variety, named Ashby's law after its discoverer. The example is ridiculous because we cannot afford to supply requisite variety by this obvious expedient. We cannot give every departmental store customer a salesman because we cannot afford it, but you may already have noticed that in very superior and therefore very expensive special purpose stores such as those selling automobiles or handmade suits, this is exactly what happens. In fact, you cannot shake the fellow off. Nor would you be able to shake off your personal policeman if half the population were enrolled as detectives to spy on the other half. It is just because this is impracticable that we have crime. We cannot meet the demands of Ashby's law. But we must come somewhere near it, somehow, or we are in for catastrophic collapse. How is this done? When varieties are disbalanced, as they usually are, we structure our organizations to cope. Fundamentally, there are two ways, and only two ways, of doing this. Remember, you cannot repeal the laws of nature, and Ashby's law will exert itself. We met the first way in the last lecture. It is to reduce the variety generated by the system so that it matches the available supply of regulatory variety. You may recall the men we had sitting on the tall poles. This was their job. And I made a crack at the financial institutions for doing the same thing. I said they shot the cat that was generating variety by swinging the tennis ball. In other words, there is no way in which an insurance company can provide requisite variety for you, the unique human being. Your variety must be attenuated, cut down so that your case fits a more general case. In theory, you can get the entirely personal quotation that corresponds to having your personal salesman or your personal policeman. Just try it, I have, and see what the insurance is going to cost. Now that is perfectly reasonable, because the claim to be able to handle every citizen's variety is as ridiculous as I admitted my example to be. One trouble with our institutions is that they do not admit that the only full solution would be ridiculous and that therefore it is not done. They should acknowledge, at least to themselves, that they are satisfying Ashby's law by variety attenuation. And the reason they do not admit it is that it sounds bad in the ear of our culture. Our culture insists on the uniqueness of the individual, but our society cannot live up to that. This is no criticism, it is a scientific fact. Our culture also insists on the absolute freedom of the individual, but our society cannot live up to that either. That too is a scientific fact. Then look at the mess we get into by our pretenses. 
instead of understanding the situation and using science to do the best possible job of variety attenuation under the guidance of the consumer and of the electorate, we spend vast sums of the nation's wealth, our wealth, on phony claims. On the consumer side, we put on the advertising pressure to pretend that full account is taken of the customer's variety, which is impossible. On the electoral side, we lose the freedoms we have when our variety is attenuated because we are not asked how the attenuation should be done. No politician would dare to ask his electorate that question because he is too busy standing for the inalienable rights which it is perfectly obvious we have not in any case got. Nor can we have them. Let's look the facts in the face. The second method of satisfying Ashby's law is the one used by the departmental store. It would be madness to attenuate the customer's variety by stocking only one kind and one size of shoe, for example, or by locking her in until she was served. The alternative is to amplify the variety of the regulatory part of the total system. You do not appoint a single salesman, but many, and you do this by departments, and each of them you try to calculate the statistical relationship between salesmen and customers so that the relaxation time is held steady. There are scientific ways of doing this, but they are not often used. The amplification of regulatory variety comes in where one salesman handles many customers effectively. In societary systems, this is the preferable way to proceed because it helps to preserve individual freedom. We do not do it for several reasons, but only one is real. The others are subservient to this. Think of the outstandingly spurious reason first. This is the most obvious reason, the cost, and there are two things I want to say about that. First, the cost of a societary system is taken as its primary measure in our society, whereas the valid measure to use is variety. The cost is not what it claims to be, namely the money that must necessarily be spent to achieve certain aims. In fact, the cost is whatever is provided in the way of funds, and this total available sum operates to constrain what we shall do within the framework we already have. If this framework is merely a joke played on us by history so that its structure is outmoded and its relaxation time is too long, then the system will not work, period. The thing is unstable. We pour in money to head off catastrophic collapse. But that is a silly thing to do. Because the money will, naturally enough, be spent on buttressing the framework, feeding an expensive variety to stop the relaxation time growing longer still, and making the instability actually worse, think of all those pulls on the tennis trainer. Second, the constraint of cost is entirely relative to the aims of society. The aims of society are of course a set of variety attenuators. We cannot do everything we conceive as socially desirable, and our aims, our programs, cut down the proliferating variety of societary choice. In so doing, the attenuator allocates the revenue that the taxpayer will bear. Once again, our culture prefers us not to look on the matter this way round. There is a total plausible revenue. Come, then, attenuate variety. Choose between developing a vertical takeoff aircraft, fighting a small economic war with the United States for the ownership of Canadian industry, and doubling the price paid for bureaucracy by having everything done in two languages. In the deathly silence I seem to hear following that solecism, I also seem to hear a faint voice, it must be a madwoman, crying, I would sooner have a 24-hour child care service. But that would cost money, and there is none remaining. Don't be ridiculous, madam, it's my prerogative. 
The point is that our variety attenuators are built into the system. Freedom of choice has gone down this particular drain. So what about the antithetical variety amplifiers? If the spurious reason for not using them is cost, the real reason is that it would mean redesigning everything so as to get rid of the built-in attenuators and install instead the amplifiers that could really work to achieve requisite variety, viable relaxation time, and hence some sort of social stability. I have already suggested a list of three basic tools that are available for variety amplification, the computer, teleprocessing, and the techniques of the science of effective organization, which is what I call cybernetics. Now I am saying that we don't really use them, whereas everyone can assuredly say, oh yes we do. The trouble is that we are using them on the wrong side of the variety equation. We use them without regard to the proliferation of variety within the system, thereby effectively increasing it, and not, as they should be used, to amplify regulative variety. As a result, we do not even like the wretched things. If one of those unworkable institutions we were discussing buys a computer, what happens? It uses the thing, please note at enormous cost, to do more elaborately exactly what was done before. And, as we know, that didn't work. One famous computer manufacturer ran an entire sales campaign for its new series of machines on the slogan that you needed simply to transfer the existing system, whatever it was, lock, stock, and barrel, to the new miracle machine. Well, that sounded good to the financial director, who had learned the hard way that immense costs are involved, yes, those same costs again, in implementing new hardware and software terms, but had not learned that the machine to do miracles is not yet invented. The effect on the institution was inevitable, to make the existing instability more unstable. It's obvious, really, once the concept of variety and the law of requisite variety are clear. The computer can generate untold variety, and all of this is pumped into a system originally designed to handle the output of a hundred quill pens. The institution's processes overfill, just as the crest of the wave overfills, and there is a catastrophic collapse. So what do we hear? On no account do we hear, sorry, we did not really understand the role of the computer, so we have spent a terrible lot of money to turn mere instability into catastrophe. What we hear is, sorry, but it's not our fault, the computer made a mistake. Forgive my audacity, please, but I have been in computers right from the start. I can tell you flatly that they do not make mistakes. People make mistakes. People who program computers make mistakes, systems analysts who organize the programming make mistakes, but these men and women are professionals, and they soon clear up their mistakes. We need to look for the people hiding behind all this mess, the people who are responsible for the system itself being the way it is, the people who don't understand what the computer is really for, and the people who have turned computers into one of the biggest businesses of our age, regardless of the societary consequences. These are the people who make the mistakes, and they do not even know it. As to the ordinary citizen, he is in a fix, and this is why I wax so furious. It is bad enough that folk should be misled into blaming their undoubted troubles onto machines that cannot answer back while the real culprits go scot-free. Where the wickedness lies, and wickedness is not too strong a word, is that ordinary folk are led to think that the computer is an expensive and dangerous failure, a threat to their freedom and their individuality, whereas it is really their only hope. 
There is no time left in this lecture to analyze the false roles of the other two variety amplifiers I mentioned, but we shall get to them later in the series. For the moment, you may find it tough enough to hear that just as the computer is used on the wrong side of the variety equation to make instability more unstable and possibly catastrophic, so are telecommunications used to raise expectations but not to satisfy them, and so are the techniques of cybernetics used to make lousy plans more efficiently lousy. But enough is enough. I expect that you would be more interested to hear what can be done about all this than to hear more dreadful news. Then may I tell you that the next three lectures will consider constructive policies for handling variety. We shall start with the state itself. This is rather bold, but you will understand by now that I believe we are all captives of gigantic systems beyond our individual control, and we need to understand them. Because, as long as we have any semblance of democracy, they are not beyond our collective control. Next we shall turn to the only thing that matters, the individual. He and she, not to mention their son and their daughter, are enmeshed in all this machinery, and they have to get out. If science cannot join with politics and management to do that, I might as well be giving the Massey lectures in that ominous year of 1984, instead of in the year of 1973. On that reckoning we have 11 years, and frankly that is about the limit. The third of these three next sessions will return to the central topic of the institution. And so, before I come to my last point, I would ask you, if you do me the courtesy of staying with these talks, to think over a crucial question before we meet again. It is the central importance of the law of requisite variety. Please think it through. Think of any complex, dynamic system. How is it regulated? It will certainly be proliferating variety. Is it not true that only variety can absorb variety? How is it done? Do you not indeed find that in successful systems systemic variety is attenuated while regulative variety is amplified? It is usually a mixture of the two. I promised you that this stuff is easy once you break with the expositions and explanations dished out by the culture. The thinking I ask of you does not have to be done on some remote level of abstraction or at the highest level of state affairs. Cybernetic laws are universal. For instance, you might think over how these concepts of variety, relaxation time, stability, and potential catastrophe work for and against you on the journey to work. You can do exactly the same exercise in the course of putting those high-variety young children to bed. Then think through how these concepts work in the big institutions of society that govern our lives. Ask yourselves how telecommunications, the telephone, television, affect those problems. Contemplate what you surely know about the role that computers play, and see if they are working on the right side of the variety equation. Finally, if it is all so easy, talk over the problem as to how we manage to get it all so wrong. Then maybe, you will see why I contend that there have to be some big changes, and that they have to come fast, before it is too late. Then I come to the last point, which I hope will help in these deliberations. If the law of requisite variety is to be handled intelligently, and not just by leaving nature to find the variety balance, which of course can be nasty for us humans, then it follows that the regulative forces must not only dispose requisite variety, which is a number of possible states, they must also know the pattern by which variety in the system is deployed. 
On the journey to work we need to have enough options open, we also need to know the pattern of the highways, where they run, what the control points are like, what other drivers habitually do. In the process of putting the children to bed we need several variety amplifiers at our command, but we also need to know, as we do, but let's make it explicit, the likely behavior pattern of the children. Without these known patterns, proliferating variety looks even more threatening than it really is, which is bad enough. What I have been calling a pattern is what a scientist calls a model. A model is not a load of mathematics, as some people think. Nor is it some unrealizable ideal, as others believe. It is simply an account, expressed as you will, of the actual organization of a real system. Without a model of the system to be regulated, you cannot have a regulator. That's the point. And you can test that too. The insights from Stafford Beer's Designing Freedom align remarkably well with the principles of the SEED framework. This harmony suggests a powerful synergy between cybernetic understanding and the SEED's holistic approach to knowledge and technology. Let's explore this synergy further. Complex systems and diversity of responses, the law of requisite variety in Beer's lecture, and the SEED framework's emphasis on diverse knowledge systems both recognize the need for a broad spectrum of responses to manage complex systems effectively. In AGI development, this implies integrating a multitude of perspectives to ensure that these systems are adaptive, nuanced, and capable of handling the diverse, dynamic nature of real-world challenges. Holistic Modeling and Regulation Both Beer's emphasis on system modeling and the SEED framework's approach align in the belief that comprehensive understanding is crucial for effective regulation. For AGI systems, this means developing models that account for a wide range of human experiences and values, ensuring that these systems are guided by ethical, equitable, and inclusive principles. Ethical Use of Technology The critique of the misuse of modern tools in Beer's work echoes the SEED framework's concerns about technology reinforcing existing power imbalances. In the context of AGI, this critique becomes a call to use these powerful tools responsibly, aiming to reduce inequalities and promote cognitive justice. Challenging Conventional Paradigms Both Beer's lecture and the SEED framework challenge, traditional views and advocate for paradigm shifts in understanding and interacting with the world. This is particularly relevant in the development of AGI systems, where there is a need to move away from purely technical or profit-driven approaches towards more human-centered, ethically-grounded frameworks. Practical Applications in Everyday Life The application of these principles to everyday experiences, as suggested by Beer and the SEED framework, is crucial. It ensures that theories and frameworks are not just abstract concepts, but are actively shaping and improving the way we interact with technology, society, and the environment. In summary, Stafford Beer's insights provide a robust foundation that complements the SEED framework's goals. They underscore the importance of understanding and managing complex systems with diverse inclusive responses and emphasize the ethical use of technology for societal benefit. This synergy points towards a more holistic, responsible approach to AGI development, where technology serves humanity's broadest interests promoting global justice, ecological balance, and intercultural understanding.